Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner and my wonderful, wonderful, wonderful co-host who supports me in everything in my life, Deb, is with me tonight. We've just barely, both of us, made it here. I guess you're having a hectic day, too. <laughs> I know. I had to round up the dogs. We have the windows open to air out the house a little bit because it is a little warm and it's not raining. And, of course, people are out walking. It's not raining and it's warm. So the dogs are like, you did not ask permission to walk past my house. <laughs> so I'm hoping that they have settled down now. Well, and I am filling my water system here in my RV with this little teeny, tiny, teeny hose because all the, our other hoses burst. Um, we had, I just got the cheapy hoses from, you know, like Walmart. Mm. So I've gotten, I have a spring, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, the only other thing that I was doing is I was hauling water from town. I haven't had to do that in many, many years, thankfully. But I, we still have hoses. We don't have um, a plumbing system. I have a tank in, in my RV. Like, everybody knows, you know, RVs have tanks and everything like that for water. But to get it here, we need hoses. So I have been filling this system in all my my water containers since 5.30 this afternoon. And I'm still yeah. doing it. That takes a while. <laughs> At least I'm not hauling it. Yeah. My God, I swear to God, Deb, I live in the 18th century. Well, Actually, the, uh, Philadelphia, all the major cities had plumbing. <laughs> I yeah. don't even have that. Oh, my God. Anyway, I've had a really hectic day, and it's still not over. Um, so welcome again to the Women of the Revolution. And uh, I am going to rant a little bit. Well, tonight we're doing a loyalist lady. We, um, we highlight uh, two patriots and two loyalists and the wives of the signers of the Declaration every month as we get here, which we just barely did. Now, we did the signers of uh, the uh, Declaration two shows ago. So now it's time to do a loyalist. And what Deb has found is amazing, but she's an amazing researcher anyway. She has found a whole essay on British wives that had come over here with their husbands as soldiers and their families. So they were transplanted from England and thrown into this war zone, okay, with their husbands. And we are going to highlight this essay. It has a couple of different ones, but we're going to also get into how this happened. How was it allowed to happen? And this was not the only colony that this happened in. Remember that the Britain had many, many colonies across the world and many, many, many wars, and many, many, many soldiers. So this was not their new road. They've been in this rodeo before. Um, they just underestimated us compared to uh, other people they've conquered. Yeah, they conquered it. Get over it. Um, 
But they also sent women, not not only the you know the colonists to colonize, but the soldiers also if they had a conflict in the area all over the world, not just America. But what I found fascinating is that these women could be court-martialed, and I was completely confused. So Deb's going to, like, really handle the show well because I was confused. I thought that they were getting court-martialed in America by Americans. No. They were getting court-martialed in America by the Brits. So basically the Brits pretty much threw everybody under the bus, their own people, the natives that they promised all this stuff to, the blacks, that the Negroes, yes, the Negro is an archaeological name for you black people. I will not call you African America because Africa is a continent. Idiots. And everybody that says that they're so stupid. Africa's a continent. It's not a, it's not a state. It's not a nation. <laughs> anyway, so they pretty much threw everybody under the bus, and I thought it was, this was fascinating, so I can't wait to get into it. Um, so the first thing what we're going to do is I'm going to rant a little bit because, and I want Deb's input. I am so sick and tired of women. We do a woman's show. We are women. This nonsense of International Women's Day, there is not a woman on the planet right now that deserves this. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. And you know what, Deb? I was watching the regular TV shows, and because it was International Women's Month or whatever the frig it is, they're bringing up all these modern women. She was the first one to do this vaccine. Not once. I've seen 10 commercials, Deb. Not once did they bring up our founding mothers. Not once. Two oh, no. No, no, because the, the people that, um, you know, are, are have leadership roles and, and are involved in the International Women's Day thing now are all socialists you know, communist, Marxist, whatever. And, well, not at all, but most of them. And the thing is, the International Women's Day, and, and there are women out there, women's groups, groups of women, whatever you want to call them, um, that are trying to better women's lives um, around the world. You never hear about them because uh, they don't toot their own horn. And... They're the few that are are for real. They they're quiet. You know they don't make it. They ne- would never wear pussy hats. Let's put it that way, or put a vagina on their head. Um, they are just out there doing it. You know, trying to get uh, gen- genital mutilation stopped. Trying to set women up in in uh, businesses um, with the this microloan thing, which is, is really helping a lot of um, women who do, you know, like handwork or farming, you know, they, they raise goats and sell what they can from the goats. And in other countries, it's sheep, if they can do sheep and, you know, sell the wool. You never hear about those people. And they certainly weren't, you know, nobody's tooting their horn for International Women's Day. And this is was the whole point of International Women's Day was to bring to light the plight of women around the world that, you know, their culture or their government, whatever, was, you know, beating them down and, and uh, torturing them and mutilating them and everything. Um, that ain't America, just so as you know. We don't do that here. Um, unless it's to each other, but it's certainly not the government and it's not the culture. So 
uh, International Women's Day, as everything that the Bolsheviks get their hands on changes from, uh, you know, a a good, um, let's try to make things better, let's lift these people up, to, I just want to feel better about myself, so I'm going to do something that makes me look cool, and, and then I can feel good about myself, and push my agenda, unfortunately. Well, and I thought it was appropriate to rant because we do do we do a show about women. But I you should have heard me screaming at the TV. I had to stop because I was getting annoying and I was annoying my husband. Because every time they would bring up a commercial, through the whole commercial, I would go, "Really? What about Civil Lovington? What about uh, uh what about uh, Dolly Madison? Do you know that she was um the first lady for 18 years? Did you know that?" I was just, I'm so incensed about this crap. McDonald's turning the, you know, McDonald's was the only place, when I was growing up, we were very, very, very poor. And for a treat, once a month, we would go to McDonald's. And the fact that they, some idiot turned the M up to a W for women, give me a break. And again, this is what they're doing. They're destroying males in this country and the world. I am so outraged, and you should be too, because you have three wonderful, wonderful little baby boys. Yeah, and they're not going to grow up to be um, pajama boys. I'll tell you that right now. Because this is ridiculous. Women, get over yourself. The most important well, yeah, this part. Is, this, is the, this is the sad part is, um, for one thing, the people that are running, you know, that are, are running commercials and and putting out, uh, you know, uh, articles and essays and whatnot, would never pick a founding mother because they don't like America and they don't like why it was founded and they don't like uh, the Constitution. So um, uh, you, you really, I mean, it's all this postmodernism crap that I have been, uh, I've been looking at more and more um, and, and I chat Susan, some uh, lecture that I heard, or parts of a lecture that kind of explained everything that was going on today. And it's really sad that these people that are out there trying to, um, you know, that are trying to, uh, well, they're not trying, they are. They're teaching our children that capitalism is bad. And I mean pure capitalism. Um, they They have usurped the word liberal and they're nothing nothing liberal about them. If you look up classical liberal, it's more of a libertarian leaning rather than a a progressive leaning. And the women in this country are not oppressed. I haven't been for a long time. Um, You know, though I remember my mother couldn't get a credit card without my dad's signature. I mean, I'm that old. (laughs) And I was like on the front line of a lot of stuff and then uh and it was basically choice and the thing that that uh, made me leave the women's movement here in this country was the fact that there was no choice the people that took over the women's movement unfortunately were the kind that didn't know the definition of the meaning of or the definition of the word choice um to to them choices you do it my way 
And I was all for choice. I was for women being able to stay home with their kids, raise them, you know, teach them if they wanted to homeschool. I was also for women going out, not having children, and making a career, breaking some ceilings, as they say now. Um, I wanted to be a horse trainer when I was old enough to go out on my own to, you know, look at that as a career. There were three women trainers in the in the country, and they were not liked. Um, they they just it, it was a man's man's thing, and the men didn't want the women competing against them, basically because we were so good. Um, I mean, they would do things like train their horses in the middle of the night behind locked doors so that the women wouldn't know what they were doing. The women apprentices. So you know that's the world I come from, but. It was nothing compared to um, the world that we're talking about now. Uh, I mean, you could, you could. Uh, well, it was a lot better after the awakening and the enlightenment, but still, um, the 15th century woman had it real bad. <laughs> and the 16th century wasn't much better. I mean, you were married off for convenience and money, so. Um, and and it could be some 69-year-old lech who had bad teeth and you were 18 and your father said you will marry him and you had to. I mean, so that wouldn't have gone well with me. But uh, a lot of things have changed. And, yeah, it, people think of the, uh, the 1700s much like the 1800s, and it wasn't. The, the 1800s, uh well when victoria became queen in england um society changed a lot um george the 4th who came after george the 3rd which is the king we're in this period but his son um uh was a regency was a regent because george the 3rd kept going mad um and that was that was a a, a a looser time too. I mean, that's when the dandies came out, and you know the fops and the um, the the women. I mean, the the aristocratic women and men. They, uh, fashion was like who you knew and, and what your dowry was, and the oppression. And I mean, read Jane Austen; she's got it down. And then came the Victorian age, you know, which was basically straight laced, except there were a lot of places. Read about Oscar Wilde. Um, so, but still, society did change. It was a lot looser in the 1700s. Women, women, women could tell a dirty joke back in the 17, you know, in the 1700s. So, which in Victorian England, you uh, you couldn't do. So it, it changed quite a bit in a hundred years. But the women we're talking about, they were pretty forthright, and a lot of them had grit. Well, most, you know, all the ones that we talk about did. So this is just, uh, it's just been such an eye-opener for me because I've learned so much more about, you know, the founding time of of our country, not not the colonies. I mean, I've read about that too. Um, and the women that, that were involved in that, there were some pretty staunch, uh, gritty women that, that helped with that. But uh, the women that, that helped create our country 
you know, birth our country, the founding mothers and founding daughters. Hey, and this founding sisters, um, yeah, they are pretty remarkable women, um, and they lived in a pretty remarkable time. God, people were educated. And I mean that in the full sense of the word. Well, of course, and also we talk about this a lot, um, that we they when it, when the colonists came here, they had to change the whole way that they thought because the wild, the land was wild. There were wild people here. Um, England wasn't really looking at them for a long, long time after the French and Indian War, but even before that. So we were always independent. We were always thinking one step ahead of where we were. And that had to do with women because guess what, ladies and gentlemen, the population wasn't that big. So we had to rely on women to take over certain roles that they would never have to do in the crowded city of London. Anyway, now that we've gotten off our soapbox, uh, get over yourselves, woman, women. By the way, the most important job you could ever have is having a child. I was robbed of that. And I was robbed of that because I had an abortion. And I swear they sterilized me. I don't even know if I was really pregnant or not. And that is the most important thing that you can do, not killing babies. Makes me sick to my stomach. Right. Anyway, we are going to do the women, the, loyal, the loyalist women. And what we're going to start with, Deb's going to read a, a really long essay, but it's very, very important because we are exploring how these soldiers came over here and what they had to go through. Now, now granted, they were our enemies, but it, it's not like the enemies of today. They weren't Muslims. Um, Muslims are truly evil and truly our enemies, and they all need to be squashed because um, they're never going away. So they had to go through hardships. Their wives had to go through hardships. Their um, family, their children that they brought over had to go through hardships. But it, to me, this the most fascinating thing about what Deborah is going to bring out, and we will discuss it in depth because I was amazed, is how organized how much supplies the Brits had. I mean, it is amazing we won the war. It, is, it truly was under God. Because these people had this down to a science, right, Deb? Because you said they've been doing it for such a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, let's see. When did they actually? Well, they, they studied the Romans, and they had it down. Uh, the generals were quite, you know, uh, they read, of course, because they were educated. Um, they knew about the Spartans. They knew about uh, the 300. They knew about Roman way of military. Julius Caesar was one of their, uh, they, they read about Julius Caesar because he was a strategic, military, brilliant genius. And I'm redundant, but he was ex he was extraordinary. Um Except that when he came over, he came over to Britannia and met up with the Picts and some of the Celts, and he decided it wasn't worth it, and he went right back to Rome. Um, 
he just saw these wild people that weren't going to give up. You know, they weren't going to take prisoners. It was, it was funny. But anyway, so they were really good at this army military thing. They had, they had. I mean, you think about the knights. They were like, um, they were pretty much when they had the knights. It was like Henry. What was it Henry the Second? Really, I do believe is when they really started putting together um, rules, regulations, and military bearing, and and what you're going to. Um, how you're going to act and, you know, all that. I think it was during that time of Henry II, if I remember correctly. But anyways, yeah, they, they, they were, they had been, well, hell, they were, um, they had colonized most all over the world. Uh, and, you know, the, our, the military is, is what went first after the explorers, of course. And they've been fighting Spain and France for a long time. Yeah. So this is going to give an overview of what they actually had to do to bring the troops over, number one, bring the wives and families over with them, number two, and and how they organized everything. Because she's going to get into it, because I think that article shows also, well, well, I'll wait till you talk about it, because I know... They, st- they stayed in all kinds of places. They still had forts over here. As a matter of fact, the War of 1812, which everybody doesn't know about, only happened because the Brits stayed here in their forts, and they weren't supposed to. They, they defied the Treaty of Paris. But anyway, after the um, French and Indian War, they still retained a lot of the, of the forts. But there was other places that they stayed too. And again, it's amazing that we won because they were so organized. We had so much more sickness than they did because of the way that they lived and what they set up, like these huts, um, as an example. But I think this, this essay is going to get into all of that. So why don't we start with that and give an overview? Because to me, this was fascinating. Okay, now this is um, RevolutionaryWar75.com. where they have all the statistics that we're not going to read. (laughs) Okay. This is by Don Hagis, who is the person who wrote um, the article about women on trial, British soldier wives. This is the Brigade of Foot Guards. Oh, you want to do that one? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, All right. So this is, all right. This is by William W. Burke and Linnea M. Bass at the military-historians.org website. And, okay, this is, this is yeah, that's right. We're going to go off with the soldiers first. Um, and this is preparing a British unit for service in America, and it was the Brigade of Foot Guards, 1776. On 13 February 1776, the Earl of Loudoun, commanding His Majesty's foot guards, issued orders forming a detachment to serve in the American War for Independence. The unit was to consist of men and officers from all three existing regiments, the 1st, now Grenadier Guards, the Coldstream Guards, and the 3rd, now Scots Guards. 
When first attached for this service, the men were attired in their own regimental uniforms. Some new items of equipment and clothing were issued to prepare them for the impending campaign. In addition, between the time the detachment formed in March and the date it went ashore in North America in August, significant alterations were wrought in its appearance for those to be fully appreciated. However, one must understand the parade ground uniform of the guards in London. There are four principal sources of information pertaining to the clothing and accoutrements of the foot guards in 1776. The first is a series of orders or warrants issued between 1768 and 1774 prescribing their uniforms. Secondly, a series of drawings once in the collection of Landgraf Ludwig IX of Hesse-Darmstadt, I'm sure I just totally massacred that, I do apologize, depicted the uniforms of the guards circa 1775. Cecil C.P. Lawson's notebooks in the National Army Museum in London contain his colored sketches of them, one of which is reproduced above. These include a grenadier from each guard's regiment, as well as an officer and a drummer. Third, the National Army Museum owns three guards' coats dated between 1770 and 1780. One is a drummer's coat and two are private's coats. I went to the Bennington Museum. This is me now. I went to the Bennington Museum in... Uh, Vermont, um, where, you know, the Battle of Bennington. And I, they have a, a revolution, uh, Revolutionary War uniform for one of our guys. And at first I thought it was, you know, the drummer's coat, because drummers were usually, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, because it was so small. But no, it was a, a private, well, I can't remember his name, his uniform, um, and and he was a grown man. It's just that they were a lot smaller then. That always amazed me. But then you figure, you know, they didn't have the food we have today, and the, the medicine. So, but it was it was amazing how small it was. I just so I've always been um, fascinated by uniforms, and and uh, I love to see the original. You know, when they have a real one. So finally, there is a painting by John Collette entitled Corporate. Corporal Cartouche instructing Miss Camplove in her martial exercises. It depicts the famous actress Charlotte Walpole in 1778 learning her role for the play The Camp. Her teacher is a third guard's corporal painted in profile. It's just adorable. She's got on this yellow fluffy dress with a headdress with ostrich feathers on top of it. and She's holding a musket and there's a little soldier behind her with the drum, and, and he's just smiling at her and everything, and it's just, just, just too cute, and there's the corporal teaching her how to hold the musket. It's just absolutely adorable. While the three regiments of foot guards were all attired in scarlet coats with white breeches and waistcoats, each maintained unique features. The principal distinction among them was the pattern of coat lace. All privates wore plain white tape, but first guardsmen laced their coats diamond fashion and had plain buttons evenly spaced. And I'll tell you, watching my daughter get her uh, class A's together, uh, she just had her um, her uh, officer's picture taken uh, in her class A's. And, I mean, they have this, this uh, ruler that's millimeters because Everything has to be a certain millimeter, a certain number of millimeters apart, 
you know, are close together and it has to be. I mean, there are, I, whoa, just watching her try to put her doodads on her, her army coat, it, it, oh, it's amazing. So, yeah, they were, they had, and, go ahead. no, I was just going to say, there, there, and there are the distinctions. Um, I mean, if you wore oak leaves and you didn't earn them, <laughs> you get into trouble. So, yeah, there were distinctions. And and that drives me crazy about my husband. I got it today because he was an army brat. He was a he was in naval academy. He was as a child. He was in uh, military school as a child. Then he went to the air force. He drives me insane with his clothes. It's they like, develop the eye. They develop the eye, and if something is off, it drives them nuts. It's true. It's uh-huh. like deal. <laughs> So what? The button isn't exactly straight. I mean, it's like every little tiny thing and, and any kind of like little strings that his oh. have to pull him off. And he's like, no, you have to cut them and they have to go this way. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and I'm sure watching a, a movie that has um, military in it, and, and of course the uniforms are never correct, but if you're sitting with two soldiers, I'll tell you, you know everything that's wrong with it. I know. Tell me about it. God, it's like, all right, enough. I know. You're next to a civilian. We don't really care this much. I wouldn't have had a clue. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. That's because okay. she has military kids and I have a military husband, so we really know what, we, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. Okay, um, so anyways, the 3rd Guards regimental buttons were in groups of three with pointed loops. The Coldstream Guards wore scalloped-headed loops and the regimental buttons set in twos. There, are, there was also a difference in the brass waist belt buckles. The 1st Guards used a square frame buckle. The 3rd Guards wore a curved rectangle and the Coldstream Guards utilized a curved rectangle with CG in the center. Which was probably good that, you know, you could look at the person and you know which regiment he's with. I mean, it does help. In all three regiments, waist and shoulder carriages were white to match the small clothes. The badge on the first guard's cartridge pouch carried the traditional regimental version of the royal cipher, a GR entwined with a reversed GR. The other two regiments utilized a plain GR within an open circle backed with red wool. Both badges were surmounted with a crown. Private's buttons were white metal, but buckles and badges were of brass. Oh, and if you ever get a chance on YouTube, um, there is a there is a uh, a documentary on how they made white lead, which is probably what they're talking about, and how dangerous it was, and and it was such a horrible job. It's uh, time teams the worst job, um, and they talk about making the white metal, and it it did kill you. If, if that was your job, it shortened your lifespan, um, and they did it for quite a, quite a while. Okay, now, let's see. Private buttons were white metal, but buckles and badges were brass. The officer's medal was gold. Their Darmstadt drawings show a white neckcloth, but black stock were also available. Battalion companies wore the traditional cocked hat taped with white. 
The guards had both white and black long gaiters, the form, former worn only on special occasions. The coats were faced with dark blue, signifying a royal regiment. Linings were white to do a surge. Shoulder straps, although not prescribed in the wards, exist on the surviving guards' infantry company coats. The coat skirts were turned back by a rectangle with points on both ends and a small regimental button in the center. Both the so shoulder straps and turn backs were blue and white taped edges. And you have to remember that all these uniforms were made by women, um, a lot of them. Um, tailors were usually men at this time, but women were, would sew and they would make the uniforms doing piecework, and they had candles to light them at, uh, during their sewing. So God loved these women, and it was all done by hand. Grenadiers sported the black bearskin cap with the king's coat of arms and white metal on a colored background. They were also distinguished by blue flank company wings on their coats and brass match cases on their cartridge pouch carriages. Guards grenadiers evidently wore no hangers, as none of these are visible in the Darmstadt figures. Their musket slings were constructed without buckles to allow rapid loosening if the weapon needed to be slung to facilitate a handling grenade. <laughs> so, hmm. The Darmstadt figures show either a leather slide or a leather button on the grenadier's slings. Presumably, the battalion companies used a traditional brass buckle. The weapons consisted of a bayonet worn on the waist carriage and a long lance pattern musket with a metal rammer. While it is generally thought that most, if not all, of the Army had adopted the short land pattern by the time of the war, there is ample, ample evidence that all three regiments of the foot guards were still using long lands until at least 1781. And you have to remember these, these uh, uniforms were wool. They were wool. So in South Carolina, that must have been a lot of fun because they didn't allow them to, uh, you know, like our our army, <clears throat> they found, you know, they just threw off their coats. I mean, if it was too hot, they, they started just stripping, um, whereas the British soldiers could not do this, which is why a lot of them died of heat. Uh, what's that term for it? Uh, when, uh, heat prostration and dehydration. The okay, now forming the detachment. The original order called for the detachment of American service to consist of 30 officers, 82 NCOs, which is non-commissioned officers, 14 drummers, 6 fifers, and 960 privates. Okay, that's the detachment. Three staff officers, five additional staff, and one drummer were added to the strength prior to embarca embarkation for North America. The men were to be selected by draft with from the three regiments of foot guards. Captain and Lieutenant Colonel Edward Matthew, Coldstream Guards was chosen for the command. An augmentation to each regiment was ordered to replace the men going abroad. In early March 1776, a draft of 15 privates from each of the 64 companies in the three regiments provided the men for American service. They were reorganized into 10 new companies. The 120 drafts from the eight existing Grenadier companies four and first guards, two each in Coldstream and third, formed a composite grenadier company. And they wonder how, you know, why it takes so long for an army to leave a country. Um, and, and we have it mainstreamed that now. I mean, it's, it's or streamed down. But you can imagine getting all this together, 
and then going on a ship. The remaining 744 men were divided into eight regular infantry companies of 93 men each. The 10 new companies were formed on 12 March and began training together three days later. The detachment assembled on Wimbledon Common to be reviewed by the King on 19 March. They left their quarters in around... Oh, I'm sorry for the dogs. Um, my little soccer player just came home. He had a game tonight. The detachment assembled on Wimbledon Common to be reviewed by the King on 19 March. They left their quarters in and around Wimbledon on 25th March and set off for Portsmouth. The King reviewed them again on 30 March, this time on Molesy Hurst. It is evident from the few relevant pieces of correspondence in the Loudoun Papers at the British Library and the Huntington Library in California that he and Lieutenant Colonel Matthew had, from the inception, entertained ideas of altering the uniform of a service detachment. It may be that Lord Loudoun's experiences in North America during the Seven Years' War contributed to these plans. Some of the uh, ideas under consideration included trousers, leggings, and checked shirts. On 28th February, Matthew sent Loudon an estimate of the cost of the extra clothing he, desi he desired, and they listed all. And, um, so it was a, a total of one pound, uh, 12 shillings per man. In the same document, he requested an allowance from the government to each man for a knapsack at a cost of two shillings, six pence. Unfortunately, in some cases, the implementation of an idea cannot be verified. In others, no description or pattern remains to provide a picture of a given item. Despite these gaps in documentation, a wealth of detailed information can be compiled regarding the uniform and equipment provided for the detachment in 1776. Matthew faced opposition to the immediately, immediate implementation of some of his ideas. He had evidently asked that the detachment's new 76 clothing be altered in some way. The king, however, insisted that their new clothing be the traditional uniform that would be issued to the remainder of the foot guards in London in June. A letter from Loudon to Matthew elaborates, His Majesty had ordered the new clothing to be sent out complete in the same shape as it would have been delivered here. As to the old clothing after the detachment is given into your hands, I shall ask no questions. Thus, after 15 March, Matthew had the power to alter the 1775 clothing that the men were wearing. Any new items, however, required the approval of the king. Matthew evidently did receive permission to implement the portion of his plans that affected officers and sergeants. On 12 March, the officers bound for America were ordered to make up a uniform with white lace like the privates of the respective regiments. In addition, they carried fusils instead of spontoons. These orders must have instituted, been instituted immediately since the Middlesex Journal and Evening Advertiser of London reported that at the review before the king five days later, the officers and soldiers were dressed in the same uniforms. Sergeants were likewise instructed to make up uniforms with white lace and to cure, carry fusils. Officers evidently began serving in the detachment without swords, but in late March were instructed to send for them. God, it's a wonder they got anything done other than just getting their little uniforms together. From the beginning, Colonel Matthew envisioned a light infantry company uniformed and equipped in a manner that distinguished it from the rest of the detachment. In mid-February, he proposed cutting the second clothing of this year into jackets. A number of notes and memoranda in Loudon's paper mentioned Matthew's ideas for equipment for the light infantry company. These include... Stop one minute. Stop one minute. The reason that we're getting into this such detail here is because when you're in battle, I mean, it's like, it's complete chaos. 
there's smoke everywhere, and you have to be able to identify who's who, right? Yeah. Which was a problem in the beginning because a lot of them came out with their old uh, red coats on our side. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, that would kind of make sense because they didn't have, we, yeah. we were, again, a ragtag bunch. Well, they, you know, they, they also um, were still British citizens. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, a bit of a problem. That's why um, General Washington um, chose blue. <laughs> I know. God bless this man. He had he had he had nothing. He started with nothing. Well, yeah, I know. He he, but you know, he had his own red coat. Unless he had to turn him in, I'm not sure. But I know that that they they were confused uh, because some of the uniforms had red coats, and it was like, okay, are you are you with us or against us? You know? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, plus the fact that I, I love, like I said, ever since I saw that um, uniform in Bennington, I have just been fascinated by. Uh, I mean, I, I go to the the museums at the the uh, bases that my daughter is assigned to, and and I just look at all the stuff that they have. It's just so cool. <sighs> okay, now. Let's see where was I? Okay. Uh, the new belts may have been necessitated by Matthew's desire to have a bill, hook, and bayonet in the same case. It appears that the authorities complied with all of these requests, which was a tub and strap instead of a canteen, a bill hook with case and bayonet belt, a powder horn, a ball bag, and a pair of bugle horns. Barrington notified Loudon that he had received the letter of the 24th and that the king had allowed the tub and straps and the remaining articles specified in your lordship's letter. Loudon then wrote to Matthew and specifically mentioned approval of the wooden tubs, bugle horns, powder horns, and ball bags. The light infantry were to be furnished with unique headwear as well. They received hat caps according to the pattern approved of instead of hats for the new clothing. On 12 March, this directive was issued. The coats of the officers, non-commissioned private and drummers of the Light Infantry Company, to be cut according to the pattern to be seen in the Coldstream Regiment orderly room. This order relates only to present clothing. No record has survived of the manner in which the coats were cut. At a minimum, they were shortened to the traditional Light Infantry length of nine inches from the ground on a kneeling man. And it had better not be ten or eight or nine and a half, or eight and a half. Since Matthew had early mentioned jackets for the light infantry, the coats were probably cut still shorter. The the necessity for a pattern may indicate even more radical changes. Finally, instead of taking regular fire locks, the men were issued light fire locks, also, also referred to as light infantry muskets. These were short land pattern fire locks rather than the long land pattern carried by the rest of the foot guards. Despite Matthew's desire for light infantry pouches, the company was probably equipped with a traditional pouch carried by the battalion company. The Grenadier Company appears to have maintained most of its traditional accoutrements since it is referred to only twice in orders. Once it was directed to hand in a return of the number of matchboxes wanting among soldiers from the 1st Regiment, the 
other orator, however, implemented a radical change in appearance. Along with the light infantry men, the grenadiers received hat caps instead of fur caps or hats for the new clothing. It is not certain when the flag companies received the hat caps. Um, I just lost my place. Uh, I was looking at the picture of the hat caps. You can go to this at uh, the website. Anyway, the delivery was probably prior to 26 March since the Middlesex Journal announced that at that time part of the detachment had marched out. The men had felt caps with black feathers delivered to them before they set off to wear instead of hats. Since there is no record of any hats or caps with feathers being worn by the battalion companies of the detachment while in England, this report probably refers to the hat caps of the flank companies. Other than the newspaper report, no description of these hat caps has survived. A rather intriguing hint, however, was left behind by Major John Andre on his map of a skirmish which was part of the Battle of White Marsh. On one side of the title, he drew a cap, and on the other side, he drew a light infantry horn and bayonet. The cap, shown above, has no uh, brim other than a small visor in front. There is a turban around the base of the crown with a bow at the back. Feathers arch over the top. A frontlet with a white edge and the letters L-I on it complete the cap. The engagement depicted is one which involved only the Queen, Queen's Rangers, the light infantry of the guards, and a company of Jaegers. The cap is not associated with the Jaegers or Rangers, nor is it the standard light infantry cap of the period. Thus, it is quite possible that Andre drew the hat cap worn by the guards' light infantry company in 76-77. The Grenadiers' hat caps were probably based on the same pattern. They would not have carried the L.I. on the frontlet, but perhaps the grenade symbolized their uniqueness. The hat caps were almost certainly felt rather than leather, as indicated by the inclusion of the word hat in the name. The report in the Middlesex Journal reinforces that conclusion since it mentions that the caps were, uh, with feathers were made of felt. Okay, now necessaries. Efforts were made to see that the men going to war were provided with adequate supplies of what were termed necessaries. The prices of some of these items were recorded, and a number of them were inventoried and inspected prior to the departure of the detachment. The items ordered by Loudon were as followed. Three shirts, two pairs of shoes, two pair of half gaiters, uh, one check shirt, three pair worsted stockings, three pair of heels and soles, picker, worm, and turn screw, a knapsack, two pairs of socks, two black socks, and a nightcap. The sole socks and half gaiters were packed aboard the transport ships with the new 76 clothing. The cold scream guards considered some of the items to be extraordinary necessaries, implying that they were over and above the normal allotment. These included the soles and heels, check shirts, half gaiters, socks, stocks, and caps. The men's coats, waistcoats, and breeches were inventoried and reviewed to see if they were clean or dirty. The necessaries, shirts, shoes, Shoes, stockings, gaiters, turnscrews, pickers, brushes, and black balls were counted to see if any were wanting. Fire locks, bayonets, shoulder belts, and waist belts were examined to see if any needed repairs. Finally, <coughs> excuse me, the knapsacks were checked to see if they were serviceable or unserviceable. And by now, the war was over. I mean, jeez. No, I, I just made it. No, it wasn't. The men began service with the detachment wearing full gaiters. They left Britain, however, wearing half gaiters. 
Even though the new issue spatter dashes were packed up, Matthew ordered on 26th March that the gators at present in use to be made into half gators forthwith. This conversion was completed almost at once. Only I laughed when I read this because it's just, oh my God, how nitpicky. Only four days later, the detachment paraded for the king in half gators and white stockings. The flank company officers also paraded in stockings and half gators, while the other officers wore boots. Um, let's see. Some company commanders evidently tried to send inferior clothing with their privates who were drafted for the detachment. Their superiors, how acted, however, acted to rectify the situation. The... Uh, the third shirts were the worst problem and were in many cases reported to be no better than a rag. General Craig ordered that in such instances a new shirt was to be supplied the next day. Exclamation point. Trousers were procured for the men in 76 as they were in each subsequent year. Matthew had estimated their cost at five shillings for two pair. While trousers do not appear on any inventory or list of necessities actually acquired, they were provided to the detachment. Um... Okay, uh, field equipment for the detachment was under consideration in early February. Barrington ordered Loudon to procure 1,062 water flasks with strings, 1,062 haversacks, 1,062 knapsacks. Um, they, uh, let's see, they're, they're style guard packs. They may have been the double shoulder strap variety that the guards carried in 1790s. Okay, there is con considerable confusion about the canteens carried by the detachment. In 76, Loudon's original instructions were to acquire tin water flasks for the men. The correspondence between Barrington, Loudon, and Matthew, however, states that the king was pleased to allow that the detachment from the Brigade of Foot Guards shall be furnished with tubs and straps instead of the canteens mentioned in the list of camp necessaries. This is curious, since the notes and correspondence on the light infantry seem to indicate that Matthews intended for it to be the only company equipped with tubs and straps. To add to the confusion, a treasury warrant dated 30 April has lists a payment for 1,062 water flasks with strings. Not only are the orders correspondent and warrant and contradictory, but the prices are not consistent either. This, I mean, it's still going on today in our military, you know, oh my God. Foul weather gear for the detachment consisted of 80 watch coats, probably of Kersey. Several other items for inclement weather were mentioned in the memoranda and correspondence, but may never have been supplied. These include mittens and leggings, as well as clothes. Caps were mentioned a number of times in documents regarding the detachment. A nightcap was one of Matthew's preliminary lists. Um, a woolen cap to wear during the voyage. There are... Uh, caps, nightcaps, and woolen caps. While these could be three different items, most likely they were all the same article, some sort of fatigue cap. Uh, rather than taking their old muskets and bayonets, the men, with the exception of the light infantry, carried the new ones, which had been ordered for the augmentation. The detachment carried its own ammunition. It expended some, both in the reviews for the king and in target practice. Matthew requested additional powder and cartridge paper several times. By the time the authorities responded, it was too late for ammunition from the Tower of London to catch up with the detachment. Well, there you go. As the detachment boarded its transports on April 26, 76, the accoutrements were placed in storage and the men were ordered to reverse their coats during the voyage. Each company took its own camp equipage 
on board, along with sufficient quantity of oil to preserve the arms from the effects of sea air and salt water. The convoy put to sea on May 6 after a series of mishaps, including a great fog and storm. Most of it, it arrived at Sandy Hook, New York, by 12 August. General William Howe, Commander-in-Chief of the Army in North America, ordered the guards to be to field as a brigade composed of two battalions with five companies each. The first battalion consisted of the Grenadier Company and four lined infantry companies. The second was composed of the light infantry company and four more regular infantry companies. Okay, and then um, upon arrival, Matthew, now a brigadier general, ordered a series of truly radical alterations in the uniform of the brigade. All these were accomplished before the men disembarked for the invasion of Long Island on August 22nd. While no explanation of Matthew's reasoning remains, most of the changes he instituted are consistent with Loudoun's North American service during the Seven Years' War. The foliage in the colonies was easily seen as a factor which could restrict the mobility of a soldier wearing a uniform with elements that could be snagged by brush or tree branches. The first adaption forced the battalion companies to join the flank companies in a loss of traditional headwear. On August 14th, they were ordered to cut their hats around immediately and sew the lace up again on one flap to stand up and the other two to be down. The soldiers were evidently unable to remove the lace in adequate, adequate condition for you, reuse since the order was amended two days later. The hats to be cut round but not laced again. If black ferret can be procured, the hats to be bound with it. And they have a picture of Colonel Thomas Dowdswell. Uh, uh, Showing the uh, the hat as a result of the order, right? And they had to just like George Washington had to constantly alter how he was doing stuff. These people were not ready for our terrain, Deb. <laughs> no, uh, you know, and a lot of you know a lot of the regular soldiers had had never been here, of course, um, and several generals had never been here before. Uh, the the commanding generals Clinton and Howe and uh, Burgoyne, they had been here before, but um, the men hadn't. They had no clue what it was like. You know, the difference from um, God Love England, it's, you know, all the fields and the the moors and all that, but, you know, we call them swamps here. (laughs) Um, The South Carolina swamps were, you know, they were a little different. But anyways, so they had to to uh, redo the uniforms, and I like how he waited until he got to America, to, you know, on the ship to do it. Because you see, the king had the last say in everything, and if he didn't like it, it weren't to be done. Um, but that's okay because you know the Earl of Loudon carried weight, and he knew, you know, he lived here, um, Virginia, and. Uh, uh, what, yeah, but what would work? Um, one of Matthew's changes was a particularly sur- surprising innovation. On uh, 17 August, he ordered that the bandits be carried fixed to the pouches according to a pattern to be seen on board the alias. The waist belts to be stowed in some dry matter till further orders. The wording in all versions of the order specifies that the bandettes were to be affixed to the pouches, not the carriages in the fashion sometimes used by the French. Glenn's version reads, fixed to the men's pouches, implying that the officers retained theirs in the original location. 
Um, a concern for conserving any leftover leather is reflected in this instruction. Whatever the companies have cut off their waste belts is to be carefully preserved. Uh, let's see. Canteens, haversacks, trousers, and blankets were to be to buy be ready for immediately delivery. Immediate delivery beginning fourth fourteenth of August. Five hundred new flints of a better sort. That's about five per man. Were provided to each company. Each soldier was to carry 60 rounds of ammunition. Whatever could not be put into the cartridge boxes to be carried tied in small parcels, bladders, canvas, or other small bags with which the companies must provide themselves forthwith. Resistance from the rebels was expected when the army landed on Long Island. As a result, the soldiers were limited in what they could carry. General Howe ordered that when the troops land, they were to carry nothing with them but their arms, ammunition, blankets, and three days' provisions. The commanding officer of companies will take particularly care that the canteens are properly filled with rum and water. The previous day, Matthew had specified that the proper proportion was two gills of rum to each canteen. He had also ordered every man in the brigade to disembark with a blanket, in which he was to carry three days' provisions, one shirt, one pair of socks, and one pair of shoes. Since Howe's order superseded this, the socks, shoes, and shirts were probably left behind. Glenn implies that the guards carried their provisions and haversacks, since his version of the order mentions disembarking with a blanket and a haversack. The brigade landed on Long Island with the rest of the Army on August 22nd. On the morning of the 23rd, it brought the camp equipage and knapsacks ashore to begin its first years of foreign service in North America. The picture presented by the Brigade of Guards on Long Island in 1776 was a startling contrast from its London parade ground appearance. Trousers and spatter dashes had replaced breeches and long gaiters. The traditional cocked hats and bearskin caps had been superseded by small round hats and hat caps. Finally, the coats of both men and officers were plain and efficient, having lost the regular length and splendid regimental lacing. The brigade was fully prepared for field service rather than for the public duties in England. It was, this article was uh, first originally published in spring 1995, issue of the Military Collector and Historian. So that, that's uh, what went into, I mean, that's, you know, just a thousand, a little over a thousand men, soldiers come to America. That That is what entailed starting a, a brigade and a new one, and then outfitting it, and then getting it to America. My God. Yeah, it's a wonder they got there in time for the war. And they did this over and over and over again. There we have what our little soldiers, or our uh, British soldiers, went through to get here. Right, and that doesn't even, I don't think, let me look this up. Um, yeah, I love all the stuff that they show that they wore. Mm -hmm. oh, that was really cool. Um, let me see. I think you're done with this, right? You did the miscellaneous yeah. autumn. And, yeah, you did the uniform changes in America. Uh huh. Yeah, okay. That's, uh, you're right, because, you know, when I was planning to travel across uh, North America as a travel nurse, which I did from 
1999 to 2002. Um, I had, I was, I because I didn't think I was going to be such a pack rat, right? But I, I ended up being one, and I and I had to get over it. Um, yes. Because all we had was the Land Rover. That was the only vehicle we were going to have. And the first time out, because I went out twice, the first time out, all we had were a roof rack. I don't even think we had the roof rack back then. No, we didn't. All we had were two lock boxes, and you know what a lock box is because you use it for your, your business. And put them in the back of the bed of the Land Rover. And the Land Rover, if people don't know what it is, I have a Land Rover Defender 90. It's bigger than a uh, Jeep Cherokee. It's actually the size if you look at the Jeep Cherokees with the two doors now. Why not the, the two door? Um, not you know the four door, the four door Jeep Cherokee. That's how big the Land Rover is. So, I mean, I was still wanting the comforts of home, you know. So half of the stuff after the first two uh, two assignments I had, they were 13 weeks, half of the stuff that I brought with me wasn't going to fit back in there. And then I brought a whole bunch of other stuff. So I ended up sending a bunch of stuff back to my parents in boxes. And this one time in Colorado, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I'm buying dishes. I'm buying this. I'm buying that. <laughs> I ended up giving it all away to a needy family because we couldn't fit it. Yep. Well, that's the, like you know, when my daughter um, has to go to a new base, they have, you know, they cover the, the moving up to a certain amount of poundage. Anything over that, it's up to you. They're, they're allowed, uh, you know, certain weight. So, you know, it's, it's uh, you're you're careful on what you buy. Okay, is this too heavy? You know, is this is this bed frame too heavy? Is this going to take up a lot of our, you know, and that you have to think about all that. And when I was in living in California, and we, you know, when Devin was a kid, we moved like nine times out of her eleven years, and they were all, you know, either a room in a house or a studio apartment or a small cottage. And every time I moved, you know, more went to either, you know, um, um, oh, the, the Salvation Army or I gave it to someone or, you know, something um, because I didn't have a truck. <laughs> I, didn't, I had a Plymouth Champ or a Ford Escort, you know, and God love, I did have friends with trucks, but, um, you know, you couldn't ask them to. They just had little pickup trucks. So, you know, it's really amazing when you think of, I mean, if you ever see a, a C-130 loaded with um, um, tanks or, you know, whatever they're going to fly over to the, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, those are my favorite planes. Brian was a—he was an avionic uh, specialist, and that's the only thing he did was he worked on those planes. And he was on the red line. And they had to get him out for uh, maneuvers, and they'd have to get him in and get him out. And he was the only one that could even do it as fast as anybody could do it. I mean, it, it was amazing that the um, Air Force, what they ended up doing to him, but they did a, a real number on him, even though he was, like, the best avionic um technician at this Air Force base in Arkansas. He was the bomb. I mean, I've read reports. I'm not just saying it because he's telling me. No, I actually read reports of all his supervisors 
because I have all his whole file. And uh, he was. He was the bomb, and they just they decimated him. And he actually had an uh, officer tell him that if it was wartime, he would have been going up in the ranks like you wouldn't believe, but it was peacetime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there there is a difference in that, and and there is a mentality. As I was reading about uh, the British court martials, that mentality about peacetime uh, versus wartime um, has been going on for a long time. So. Yep, I know it's called politics. All right, so uh, we gave you a background of what uh, these women, because they they're being transported with their husbands now. So. I'm going to go to, and Deb loves the site, I do too. It's the Journal of the American Revolution. It's allthingsliberty.com. And we will start to talk about it. Now, let me see on my list what I have you doing next. Oh, you have that other wonderful um, um, article that I told you to get last night? Yes. Okay, cool. All right, so we know about the brigades. We know about the... Um, the regiment, because they, they go into regiments as well. And um, they're going to go into trial, but again, I have it circled dead because I was so stupid. I'm like, how are they being tried in the U.S. and by U.S. people? And they're like, no, they're being tried by their own people. I was so confused. Okay, so um, I'm going to do next. Uh, this is the one article, and then I'll get into the ladies uh, that Deb has found out. What this article is, what this essay is, it has actually the numbers of the men, women, and children per unit, which I'm not going to get into because it's very, very, very long. But, I mean, this was a lot of work that these people went through to um, put this together. And it has uh, how many men, ratio of men to women, and Blah, 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 blah. But I just wanted to get, okay, this is what I wanted to get into on this article. It says, regiments serving in America relied on recruits from Europe to sustain their numbers. Each year, a regiment might receive 50 or so new men to make up for the losses. That's why I had Deb read that essay, because if they're getting each year 50 or so new men, that, this is what they had to go, that, go through, what Deb just read, to get here. Okay. Right. Um, some wives were allowed to accompany the recruits. For example, when a parcel of German recruits embarked to join the 60th Regiment of Foot in early 1777, four soldiers' wives accompanied 53 non-commissioned officers and private men for a ratio of about one woman for every 12 men. Um, and then it says about the examples up there, which they did. They broke it down by regiment and how many men and women were in each. Um, let's see. The number of women allowed to accompany a regiment when it embarked on foreign service was governed by the specific orders, but that the prescribed ratio could vary significantly and may not always have been enforced. Um, the number of women and children within the regiments generally exceeded that allowed in the embarkation orders. And explaining the discrepancies, you must remember that the orders concern transportation and do not address the number of women allowed to be with regiments after arrival at their destination. In some cases, women secured their own passage to America. 
Evidence of this exists in a letter to General Washington in October of 1775 describing the situation of two women who were on board a captured British ship. Um, and the brigantine Dolphin Lately carried into Gloucester. The two women accompanying this were passengers. Their names were Margaret Roberts and Mary Cap. And they nap, sorry. And they have they say they have husbands belonging to the 59th Regiment of General Gage's army and are desirous of seeing them. I am therefore directed by the board to recommend to you, to your excellency, meaning excellency, to permit them and two children to pass your lines in order to their proceeding into Boston. Also, some soldiers certainly married during their time in service, and Deb's going to get into this more. On extreme cases described by a German officer in New York who encountered a sergeant of the 38th Regiment of Foot, the latter boasting about having married 17 times since his arrival in America. Without further information, we cannot verify or refute the accuracy of the sergeant's claim, nor can we say whether such deviant behavior was common. So this is very complicated, and this is one thing I do want to bring in, and we do do this. This is not just the regular history show. We like to do this in context of where we are right now. When we send our troops into when, in World War I and World War II, um, the men stayed there for a very, very long time. It wasn't like now. Uh, it was more like this. You, it takes months to get across to where you're going on the other continent, across the pond. And we were very slow in taking our men out. So, therefore, we had the whole problem of them marrying women in these other countries that we had uh, liberated, Italy, France, Germany even. I mean, the, the men, I actually did a, an article on this. There, there was times where the men were not brought back for like a year or two, maybe even three, right? Am I saying this right? Yes. And that had to do with the logistics. It had to do with re, we were already starting the stupid nation building, excuse my language, crap back then which I hope Trump has put a, a kibosh on. My soldiers aren't there to nation build. Our soldiers are there to kill and leave. Um, yeah, the Peace Corps, you want a nation build. Yeah, yeah, that's what, they, that's what they got the Red Cross for. It's an international cabal anyway, that thing. Just send them in there. Um, but this is the same thing problem here in this Revolutionary War, as I'm pointing out. Not only were the wives coming over and you had to deal with that, well, you'd have to deal with what? George Washington just had to deal with. Well, what do you do with them? They're captured. They want to go see their husbands that supposedly serving. Are you going to keep them as prisoners? I mean, this is a really complicated issue. Um, what are you going to do? Uh, because we have to pay for them. That's another reason, like, you know, um, let's get rid of these uh, illegal criminals because I don't want to pay for them anymore. But uh, he had to deal with that. The Brits had to deal with it. And again, to me, and I'm going to get your opinion, it seems that they were trying to make the soldiers happy. If the soldiers were happy and knew that their wives were with them, they would perform better, right? Well, that's why George Washington finally allowed it. He didn't want women in the camp. He didn't want any women in the camp. He wanted everything done by the soldiers. He didn't want have uh, the, the families with him. Um, but he realized that it would keep morale up, and he was, he was also married to Martha Washington, <laughs> and she... Well, 
No, and the other thing is that he, and I, I did, uh, again, I wrote an article about women in combat, and I went all the way back to Florence Nightingale, um, and I actually just did another article I sent out of uh, American women, American nurses in the Middle East, which I'll talk to you offline. I was shocked to find out what they have to go through. Um, any woman that's now serving in any capacity in the Middle East is like, please, get them out of there, okay, already. But um, the, 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 what it would do, what it did do, is he finally realized that it was going to free up more men to go to battle if he used the wives that were following them anyway because their houses and homes and things were being destroyed. So it was, it, it was, more, it was also a uh, logistic um, decision because he was like, oh, okay, well, if they can do the laundry and they can, yeah, get over yourself, girl. Um, and they can be, you know, they nurses. Work. Huh? They had to work. They, they, if they could work, they had to work. Right, but then it would free up the men that were doing those duties to right. fight in the war. So that's why they did that. And that's, what I guess, why the British allowed as well. Well, not only morale, but they figured, well, if they go, they go there, then the, rest, the men can fight. They don't have to do all these duties. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, if you, if you, especially women out there, think that housework, organizing a house, making sure everybody has enough food, making sure that you have food put up, doing dishes, doing laundry are menial tasks, then you're idiots. Because, like I said, I probably live like, like somebody in the 17th century. It takes me all day. It just took me. I just finished getting water. Now, I'll have enough water to do dishes and everything I have to do to cook for 10 days. I had to figure all that out. How many days is this going to last? Is this amount going to last? And this is what they have to do in, the, in, the, in war and the armed, um, armed services. So this task of getting water took me four hours. So. Don't have some feminist, pussy, pink hat woman tell you that what you do for your family doesn't mean anything. Oh, I'm so, I am so angry at women's intention. <laughs> I just can't get this out of me. <laughs> Look what our founding mothers did. Gosh, you women. Okay, so... Wives of British soldiers were allowed to accompany their husbands overseas, much like spouses of military personnel often do today. Now, explain that, because I asked you this question when we were off air last night, because I didn't know they were allowed. Well, yeah. Um, they are allowed, well, they are allowed to go to the, the base that the, the soldier is, I mean, that's why they have, um, family housing on, on, on bases, you know, your your husband or your wife gets, uh, <coughs> excuse me, gets sent to, you know, another, like, duty station, you know, the whole family goes within the, the United States, and there are bases around the world where you can um, take your your family. Uh, when my daughter was sent to South Korea a couple of years ago, that was designated um, her her duty that she was going to be there for. It was it was uh, put in non-family. 
So she had to go away. She was there for 18 months, um, and and uh, her 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 baby and and her husband stayed in Virginia. And luckily, they were very close to us. So you know, he came up on the weekends with the baby, and uh, that helped out a lot. But you know, she she missed 18 months of of uh, you know her firstborn's life. Because there are certain places that the families aren't allowed to go, and then you know, but they do not go to combat areas unless they're both soldiers and or you know both in the military, and they they uh, there have been women and wives or women and wives women and uh, men who are married that have you know gone to combat areas. Uh, you know, war, where we're at war, supposedly, uh, together, but they, they were both ordered to go. So um, you don't go just because you want to. You have to follow orders. And there were no, there were no camp followers. Because it's all different now. Susan? Susan, are you there? Hello. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? I just me? got kicked off. Oh, did you? I did. Uh, but I came back fast. <laughs> yes, you did. Okay. I did. Okay, unlike modern militaries, however, wives of soldiers often lived in the barracks and encampments and accompanied their husbands on campaigns. Although not under the contractual obligations of an enlistment, wives were fed by the army and subject to some of the same regulations as soldiers. They could be put on top for violations of military law, and a number of British army wives were tried by general court-martial in America for an assortment of, assortment of crimes. I, when I was reading this, Deb, I said to myself, you know, these women really didn't do all this. They were just blamed. <laughs> Isabella McCain, 43rd Regiment of Foot. When a knock came on the door in the middle of the night, Thomas McMahon did not want to answer it. The soldier in the 43rd Regiment lived in a house in Boston with his wife, Isabella. An indulgence allowed by the Army to married couples who were trustworthy and could afford their own lodging. It was December of 1775, and the city had been under siege for eight months. At the McManon's door were three soldiers of the 59th Regiment, married men who had been to their house before to drink. Thomas McManon finally opened the door, and seeing that the visitors had bundles, asked where they had gotten them. One soldier said that, one soldier said they had clothing and fabric that they'd found in a house abandoned by a man who had gone to the West Indies and then asked if they could store them for a while in the house. There were enough abandoned buildings in Boston and enough animosity among British soldiers toward the Yankees who had started a war that McMahon allowed the men to store the goods in the cellar in return for a share of them. Over the next day or so, Thomas and Isabella McMahon helped them parcel out the goods Thomas retained some cloth for a coat. Isabella kept six pairs of stockings and some uh, calamanco for a petticoat. 
They sold some of the goods and divided the proceeds with the soldiers who brought them. Then the provost marshal came to search the house. The provost marshal was the senior military law enforcement officer. He and his men were searching for goods stolen from a store, and they knew where to look. I'd like to know who ratted them out. Well, the store hot before, you know. They they might. They, I mean, they, they they pay very close attention. The stealing wasn't allowed. I mean, that was that you'd get court-martialed for stealing, and and punished. Especially if you stole from another soldier, but you were not supposed to steal from the locals. Ah! The provost marshal was a senior military law enforcement officer. He and his men were searching for goods stolen from a store. The store was some distance away, but one of the soldiers of the 59th Regiment had confessed to the theft and agreed to testify against the others. Okay, well, that's how they found out. On December 13, 1775, two soldiers of the 59th Regiment were tried by a general court martial and convicted for theft. Thomas and Isabella McMahon were tried for, quote, receiving sundry stolen goods, knowing them to be such, which they didn't. So that's what I'm saying. She really didn't do anything. She didn't know they were stolen. Yes, she did. She did? It doesn't say here. Oh. In this article. Think about it. Just think about it. Now... Her her husband in the this regiment. These soldiers he knows. Apparently the provost knows about them too. They're they're in a small world, very small community. Everybody knows who's doing what, and you know darn well. She knew that they were stealing. Okay. I guess I was just giving her the benefit of the doubt because she's a woman. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. No. Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, see, cause one soldier said they had clothing and fabric that they found in a house abandoned by a man who'd gone to the West Indies. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, maybe I'm more cynical than you are. Uh, yeah, maybe. That small a, a world. <laughs> and if the provost knew, the provost marshal knew where to look first thing, I'm thinking that, you know, this might have happened before. Good point. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Okay, so. Um, Plus, it didn't matter. They were accessories. It was not unusual to have two or more defendants on trial at the same time if they faced charges for the same crime. They were found guilty. He was sentenced to receive 1,000 lashes, a fairly typical punishment for this type of crime. She was sentenced to receive 100 lashes on her bare back at the cart tail in different portions in the most conspicuous parts of the town and to be imprisoned for three months. Why the hell did she get worse of a... 
Uh, I guess I want to make her an example of her so no women do this again. I don't know, but that was that's a little harsh. Um, the number of lashes was low compared to sentences for soldiers. Yeah, but she was imprisoned. And the mode of giving them was quite different. Where soldiers were usually lashed in front of their regiments, to set an example, Isabella McMahon was to be tied to the back of a cart and lashed in front of townspeople, which would both humiliate her and show that the army would not tolerate crimes against the civilian population. Which does make sense, because you don't want the civilians to rise up. Well, and plus, like I said, it was very much frowned upon to be stealing. I mean, even though it was done and certain people didn't say anything about it, and they, you know, it was it was foreboded. I mean, it really was. They they really looked down upon stealing. That's really strange to you know, knowing what other things they did. <laughs> well, that you know. Um, Raping, if you were caught raping, um, that was that that would go up to maybe a regimental court-martial, which could end in you being executed. So. Okay. Um, as of yet, there is no record of whether the punishments were carried out or forgiven. Mary Jeffries' Brigade of Guards. The British Army included three regiments of foot guards charged with protecting the royal family and government institutions. After war broke out in America, a composite brigade consisting of about 1,000 men was formed of volunteers from each of the three foot guards regiments to serve in the war. And that's what Deb was highlighting earlier. The Brigade of Guards arrived in America in 1776 and participated in major campaigns throughout the war including New York, Philadelphia, the Carolinas, and Virginia. One soldier in the brigade was John Jeffries, a private from the 1st Regiment of Foot Guards. While the brigade was wintering in Philadelphia in late 1777 and early 1778, Jeffries met a local woman, Mary Steger. He dutifully applied to his colonel for permission to marry her, but was disappointed when his request was not granted. They married anyway in Philadelphia's Gloria de Church on April 9, 1778. When the army left the city in early June, Mary accompanied her new husband. Not all women were officially allowed on the march, and you do know that she automatically is the enemy and automatically is a loyalist, and her whole life was changed because she made this decision. Um, And she may have been among those excluded not all women were officially allowed on the march, and she may have been among those excluded, for John and Mary stayed at the rear of the company while the army was on the move. Each time the army halted, they made their hut some distance away from the rest of the company. Because I had wanted you to find out about these huts. Um, I don't know if you did, or for you could just, find it. You know, huh? they were just little, I mean, they might put together branches and with leaves on it and make a lean-to or, you know, they just made whatever they could to keep them out of the elements. That's what a hut was. They just called it a hut. Oh, okay. Um, this behavior, uncharacteristic of the soldier who had in the past always kept up with his comrades, aroused the suspicion of Jeffries, Sergeant James Wilson, 
rather than take any direct action, such as ordering Jeffries to keep up and to bid, bid back. Bid back, yeah. Bid back, okay. Yeah, I, didn't, I, knew, I knew you would know about it. <laughs> With his company, Sergeant Wilson reported to the colonel his suspicion that the couple intended to desert. The officer directed Wilson particularly to observe Jeffries. The Army arrived at Sandy Hook in New Jersey and there waited to board ship for the final part of the journey to Staten Island. On the morning of July 3rd, in spite of his sergeant's close observation, John Jeffries was absent from the 10 o'clock roll call. Following the unusual protocol when a man was absent, a search was made for his spare shirt, stockings, and shoes. When it was discovered that they were missing, a typical sign of desertion, search parties were sent out. They found Mary in a house-quartered mile behind the encampment at about 2 o'clock that afternoon with her own clothing packed up, but none of her husband. She said that she knew nothing of his whereabouts or intentions, but she was nonetheless confined on suspicion of having advised and persuaded him to desert. Mrs. Bergdahl, I can't believe that man's alive and out. She sailed with the Army to New York and awaited her trial. She was brought before a general court-martial in Brooklyn three weeks later. The court called her Mary Jeffries and a follower of the Army, but she used the terms husband and, or wife in many other, or wife. In many of the trials, wives were explicitly referred to, for example, Miss, Mrs. Linden of the 22nd Regiment. Sergeant Wilson, the sole witness, related the circumstances above and claimed that she spoke of returning to Philadelphia where her father lived. In her defense, Mary repeated that she knew nothing of her husband's desertion. She said not only that she had gone to the house in the rear of the encampment to wash her clothing, but that she had informed Sergeant Wilson of her intentions before doing so. While the sergeant claimed to have found her at a house with her clothing packed up, she said that another soldier had found her there while she, her clothes were hanging out to dry, and that she then packed them up and went herself to the sergeant. Responding to the claim that she would return to Philadelphia, Mary Jeffries explained that many soldiers' wives had heard they might not be allowed on the transport, and some decided that they would return to Philadelphia if they were so refused. She herself had planned to see her husband on board the ship before returning. The court acquitted her probably because Sergeant Wilson was the only witness against her, and her explanations were reasonable enough. Although the sergeant testified that he had heard since Jeffrey's desertion that he had been seen in Philadelphia, we have no information on his actual fate, nor the life pursued by Mary Jeffers after her trial. This, is, this article is really amazing to me, um, Deb, because we never have a lot of information, but this has got to be transcripts from these trials, right? Yeah, the National Archives um, in London, uh, I, I, w I went there to look up to see if I could find um, transcripts of some of these court martials. Uh, they have not been digitized in a great number yet. Um, and, and these, uh, so I'm sure the, the author, Dan, um, you know, what's his name, Don? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting tired. Don Hagis. Uh, the author, you know, went to London. I mean, because he's been doing this for years, and, and he has some wonderful blog posts on all sorts of different parts of of the Revolutionary War and the people and the battles um, in the armies. And so, if, you know, you can find him, um, you know, on the Journal 
of the American Revolution. They have his uh, his page and also Amazon because he's written some really good books. But anyways, there you are. But Eleanor Webb, Brigade of Guards. Another soldier from the Brigade of Guards who married an American woman was Edward Webb, a 25-year-old soldier from Sedgley, Chaffordshire, married Eleanor Dick Delhi, Delay. On May 14, 1778, in Philadelphia's Gloria Day Church. Wow, that's a busy church. Although the six-year, huh, was the one nearby. Yeah. Although the six, for some reason I have a a vision in my head of Las Vegas. Although the six-year Army veteran had never learned to write, he had learned the trade of nail maker before enlisting. An inch under six feet tall with dark brown hair, gray eyes, and a dark complexion, he was a good specimen for a soldier. He took his new bride back to New York with the Army. In October of 1779, they were living in their brigade of huts uh, of boards or logs with thatched roofs, which were often built onto the side of hills. A dozen or so men and their wives might live in these one-room huts. They were cramped but cozy quarters for the cold season. One night in late October, three soldiers of the guards arrived at the door of the hut and Eleanor Webb shared that, that Eleanor Webb shared with her husband and others. They asked for something to drink, and she obliged. Then they asked if they might leave a bundle there for a while, which she also allowed. Well, these women are stupid. They returned the next day to open the bundle and divvy up the contents. One soldier saying he found the bundle containing an assortment of, you're right, you can't be this stupid. One soldier saying he found the bundle containing an assortment of cloth and three pairs of women's stays in the street. They gave Eleanor Webb a pair of stays, two pieces of a calico cloth, and one piece of plain cloth. She hesitated to take them, saying she was afraid they were stolen, but the soldiers assured her that they had been found. Some of the goods remained in the hut, and one of the soldiers took the remainder. The next day, more people arrived at a hut, a shopkeeper, a constable, and some men assisting them. They searched the hut and found some of the things from the bundle, which had indeed been stolen from the shopkeeper's shop. She had received a tip that they'd be found in the Webb's hut. Other things had been found in the camp of a Hessian regiment, where soldiers and wives had bought them from a British soldier. A few days later, the constable and his men returned, and this time they dug into the ground under Edward Webb's bed. They found more stolen goods. Edward and Eleanor Webb and four other soldiers of the Brigade of Guards were put under arrest. Three soldiers were tried in early December for breaking into the shop and stealing an assortment of goods, the key witness being another participant in the crime who agreed to send King's evidence, that is, to testify on behalf of the prosecution, in return for immunity. When the trial concluded, Edward and Eleanor Webb, among one with one other soldier, were tried for receiving and secreting of goods stolen from the shopkeeper. The prosecution's testimony was straightforward, relating the events described above. Eleanor Webb testified honestly about her concern that the items had been stolen, as well as the reassurance she'd been given that they were not. The court, however, did not accept this as an excuse. Plundering and the distribution of stolen goods had been a rampant problem in the British Army in America, and many similar trials were held during the 18 months that Mrs. Webb had been with the Army. Edward and Eleanor Webb were found guilty. He was sentenced to receive 500 lashes, 
while she was sentenced to be drummed out of the lines with a rope around her neck. Having an American wife and having been sentenced to lashes, Edward Webb had every reason to desert, but he didn't. He remained in the Army until 1796. Um, let's see, how many more do I got? Because I really want you to read that article. Um, we're running out of time. I know. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm going to read one more. Sophia Sinclair, 76th Regiment of Foot. The 76th Regiment was raised in Scotland in late 1777 and 1778, one of several regiments created for the duration of the American War and disbanded after hostilities ended. The regiment sailed for America in 1779. On board one of the transports, the Kingston, a soldier named Hugh Fraser, was walking on the forecastle when Sophia Sinclair approached him and grabbed his collar. That they apparently had some sort of joke between them that she was playing upon, but something went wrong. For reasons that remain a mystery, Fraser didn't take it lightly. He turned on Sophia, putting his hands around her throat and shouted, You will not do that. I am not afraid of you. She struggled with him, apparently trying to free herself, but his arms were longer than hers. Her husband, John, sprang to her aid, punching Fraser once on the left side of the head and once in the stomach. Oh, this is a, you know, this is, this just happened, actually. There was a, a fight on two, um, what you, cruise lines. Oh, yeah. That's like, like last week. These people were, like, punching, like, beating each other up on the cruise line.
He behaved himself honestly and with sobriety. He should not have parted with him, but for this late unhappy affair, and she always behaved herself exceedingly well. John and Sophia Sinclair were acquitted of murder, incomplete surviving monster roles, make it impossible to trace their subsequent lives. That was a pretty cool story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we have time for you to read this uh, last essay, which is uh, I thought was going to bring a lot to the party. So, uh, the one about the uh, the marriages. Yes. This is also by Don Hagis um, at his. Uh, uh, Redcoat76.blogspot.com is uh, one of his uh, websites. Um, and it, it talks about British soldiers and American writing about the British Army. Um, and he writes on uh, British prisoners marry in America, the 26th Regiment in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 1776. Says, it's fun to be surprised by data. Even more fun is to be surprised twice. Marriage records for soldiers of the 26th Regiment of Foot held as prisoners of war in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, provide just such an interesting double surprise. In 1775, the 26th Regiment of Foot garrisoned the British post at St. John's, a key post on the Richelieu River, which lay on the pa passage between Montreal and Lake Champlain. Excuse me. In November, the garrison was overpowered by an American force sweeping northward that would also take Chambly, Montreal, and then lay siege to Quebec. Most of the 26th Regiment was captured at St. John's or along the river. These prisoners, along with prisoners from the 7th Regiment of Foot, were sent to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, some 400 miles away and far from any of the war's front lines. The prisoners began to arrive in Lancaster in early December, about a month after they were captured. They soon began to get married in the town St. James Church. Comparing the maiden names of the brides to names on muster rolls and prisoners' lists, we surmise that the prisoners met most, if not all, of the brides after arriving in Lancaster. The names don't indicate that they were daughters or widows from within the regiment. It was no surprise that British prisoners of war married local women. In fact, that was completely expected. What is surprising was the number of marriages, 16 in a one-year period from December 1775 through December 1776. The marriage records inexplicably list one man as belonging to the 47th Regiment, but he is on the muster rolls of the 26th Regiment. An additional seven marriages involved men listed simply as a soldier. None of these can be correlated with certainty to the men of the 26th Regiment. There were about 300 prisoners from the 26th Regiment held in Lancaster. At least of a list of 247 of these soldiers take in the, taken in the middle of 1776 gives the name of 66 wives with them. Most were probably with the regiment when it was captured, but the list includes four of the women who married in Lancaster, and oddly does not include some of the others who married into the regiment before the list was made. Given that many of the men were already married when captured, not all were eligible to marry local women. Yes. 
With this imprecise information, we can estimate that between 5 and 10% of the prisoners got married while in Lancaster. Among the maiden names of the brides are a few that match up with the names of other prisoners. Possibly some of these brides were daughters of couples in the regiment. We don't have enough information to know how many, if any, of the brides were already in British military families. One new bride's last name matches that of a prisoner who enlisted in the American Army. Did he abandon his wife, prompting her to marry another soldier of the 26th Regiment, or is it just by chance that they had had the same last name? From other sources, we know that British soldiers who married local women were liable to desert from the Army when an opportunity arose in order to stay with their wives. Also, whenever British prisoners of war were exchanged or released, some of them deserted instead of returning to the army. Detailed figures have not been determined, but we estimate that about 10% of prisoners did not return to the army. <laughs> this expectation led to the second surprise about marriages in the 26th Regiment. The prisoners from the 26th Regiment of Foot were exchanged in early 1777 after over a year in captivity. The regiment's musters roll allow us to trace the careers of the soldiers. Several of them did not return and are written off of the muster rolls as deserters, all on the same day. Surprisingly, though, only two of the 16 men known to have married in Lancaster did not return to the Army. Thirteen of the newlyweds duly returned to New York and continued their military duties. One man disappears from the muster rolls with no annotations, so his fate is not known. Four of the newly married men died within a year or two of rejoining the British Army in New York. One was discharged in America in 1780. Six served in the 26th Regiment through September 1780 when the regiment ordered home. Two of them were drafted into the 45th Regiment and were still in the Corps in Canada in 1785, while the other four were probably also transferred into other regiments. A gap in the muster rolls makes it impossible to follow their careers after September. Two of the married men returned to Great Britain with the regiment, one of them serving until 1792. But what about their wives? Wives of British soldiers had the option of following their husbands, and these American women who had wed British prisoners of war were entitled to stay with the men who were exchanged and went to New York. That doesn't mean, though, that they did. Documents giving names of soldiers' wives or even enumerating which soldiers were married are very rare and none are known to exist for the 26th Regiment after the 77 exchange. Perhaps all of these women remained in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and eventually established new lives. Or perhaps they followed their husbands, taking on the roles typical of army wives in garrison and on campaign. Either way, their lives were profoundly changed by the temporary presence in their hometown of British prisoners of war, and below are the marriages of soldiers of the soldiers here. Jonathan Hayward married Bridget McGuire. Um, let's see. Daniel Allen and Catherine McElroy, and Allen remained in the regiment through 1779. John Andrew Walker married Anne Aritage, and he rejoined the regiment but died in late 77 or early 78. It's so sad that we don't know what happened. Oh, I hate that. I, I it, you get like teased. So there, there was a whole bunch of them, and it, it, you can look at the, you can uh, look at the, uh, um, blog blog post. And if you would like the book British Soldiers American War, you can get it 
and he has the link on his his site. And I really want it. I just can't afford it right now. Um, I have to wait for it to come. You know, that that uh, other seller's part of Amazon. You know, where you go to the used bookshop. Um, but it looks very good. Um, it would be nice to know. I mean, because when you think about it, the British soldiers were coming to fight British subjects. Well, after the Declaration of Independence, they didn't consider themselves. But they had no knowledge of of what an American colonist was like, except what they had heard, either you know through the newspaper articles or people who had been there, and uh, they weren't, you know, thought really very well of in, in uh, England, unless you were, you know, chosen Brits, then, you know, you didn't matter. Well, you bring, up a, you bring up a really good point, because the women here in the colonies were so much different than the women in Europe. And they were, like, totally taken back by, I, I can just imagine, by not only their beauty and grace, by their their intellect and their, you know, the way that they thought, you know, because we were rugged individualists, you know? Yeah, um, I imagine they were, they were surprised. Uh, yep. But, um, I imagine also that, uh, if they if they met well now it depends on which class you're talking about um, a rotter right by either way our women were independent well they were they were um, they weren't as tied to societal mores as much as in in England um, but a lot of these these you have to remember that uh, I mean, it must have been a whole new world to to the uh, mercenaries, the the ones that King George brought in from different countries, um, like the Hessians and you know the armies for hire that he brought in. Uh, but I would have loved, I would love to have been able to spend some time in London and then go to America back in the day, you know. At, during this time, just to see, because I mean, the the uh, aristocracy here, the American aristocracy, um, they did try to uh, favor English styles and things. I mean, they they tried to keep up with England, and of course, they were behind. So when the English uh, uh, aristocracy, the British, the, the Londoners or, you know, parliamentary people, the the upper, what do they call that, the, the upper crust, uh, came over to America when, you know, some of them did. Yeah, they were, they were, even the, the best of the best were looked down upon as, you know, so, so uh, second class. Was, uh, we, they, we were rough around the edges. You know the Peggy Shippins and the uh, uh, yeah, but they must have been enchanted by them as well. Like, oh my goodness! Oh, I'm sure. You know, like I said, back in the day, back in in, in the 
18th century, a woman could tell a dirty joke and it went over well. I mean, not really disgusting, but, you know, a little risque. Risque was okay, um, more so than in the next century, much more so. Uh, you know, flirted. They flirted. Yeah, and also we were Christian. Oh, yeah. I mean, so were the Brits. Yeah, but they weren't Christian like we were Christian. Oh. <laughs> now they only had the the uh, the Anglican Church. We had several different ones. We had a bunch of churches. Oh, we did. <laughs> anyway, I can get one woman in, and then we can do our little spiel to end the show. Anne Hensley, 52nd Regiment of Foot. When Boston was besieged by a nascent American army in 1775, the British garrison, in order to adopt a war footing, allocated a single barrack building for soldiers' wives rather than the usual mode of allowing them space in the barracks of each regiment. So you notice the different ways they're doing things. They, we just described the huts that they lived in, and some of them lived in regular housing, and now these are going to be living in barracks. So there was all the different ways that these women were housed. Um, wives were, huh? Their husband's rank. Yeah. Well, this doesn't say anything about the rank. It's just saying about logistics. Oh, yeah, but no, they also, it, it also was you know, determined by rank. Wives were not required to live in this barracks, however, if they could afford something on their own. Anne Hennessy of the 52nd Regiment rented a ground floor apartment in an otherwise vacant house in the city's north end. The house abutted another vacant house, which suggests something about conditions in the besieged city, which many residents had abandoned. And there was a doorway adjoining the garrets of the two buildings. In December of 1775, a widow named Anne Powers came to Hennessy's apartment to make a gown for her. She fell ill while there and stayed for a few days to recover. During her convalescence, she turned various aspects of Hennessy's routine, although being bedridden, she had heard more than she saw. Hennessy went upstairs from time to time only briefly. Her husband, John, a soldier in the 52nd Regiment, came to the house for meals and indulgences allowed to responsible married soldiers. Once she heard her tell her husband something about things in the basement, and one morning a man came to buy tobacco from Hennessy. Powers heard them talking about things for sale, and the man saying he'd come back that evening with another man to make some purchases when Hennessy telling him, don't fail. Later that same day, Aunt Hennessy came home from running errands and found two more men in the house the owner of the house next door, and a soldier employed by the provost marshal. They had a search warrant and proceeded to search the house for clothing, bedding, and some other things that had gone missing from the adjoining house. They had to break into two upstairs rooms and a closet, and Tennessee had no keys to them. In the closet, they found the missing bedding, so they took both women, Anne Hennessy and Anne Powers, to the jail. Once there, Powers suggested that there might be more things in the basement, and the remainder of the missing goods were in fact recovered from there. John and Anne Hannesley were put on trial for theft. During the testimony, however, several things became clear. The garret door adjoining the two houses was not locked. Neither the back entrance nor the outside basement entrance to the house where Hennessy had lived had lived had locks either. 
anyone could have gotten in, and Hennessy had to prop the door shut with chairs because she couldn't lock them. The homeowner told the court that Hennessy had a key that opened the closet, but the provost marshal soldier explained that they had first broken the lock such that any key could have opened it. As to the conversations overheard by Powers, Hennessy explained that she had told her husband that she found things in the basement that hadn't been there before, that a soldier had come to buy tobacco from her. It was quite common for army wives to earn their living by selling consumable soldiers. And when she explained that she had none, the soldier said he would return in the evening with a man who had some that she could purchase. Both John and Anne Hennessy denied having any knowledge of the stolen goods other than Anne having found things in the basement. Lacking any evidence that the Hennessy had stolen the goods, John and Anne were acquitted. One would hope that the homeowner took better care to secure his house. And those were the women, the wives of British soldiers. Let me get up to the top. I love this title. Women on trial, British soldiers' wives tried by court-martial. Now, briefly, go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. There you will find knowledge to fight these progs. We're at war, people. They have our show, Brian and I's show, Uncooperative Radio Show, All Politics, Deb and our show, and Patriot Pub, which is nothing but history. And it is the Continental Congress account, day by day, of their words, what they meant, and how they made the Constitution. And as always, Deb takes us out. you got four minutes, ladies. All righty. Well, as usual, I always say we have to uh, take care of our, our uh, kids in uniform after they come home. There was, I don't really know the whole story, but the, uh, the vet that uh, went into the vet's um, home, or was it in Texas, um, just last week and, and killed the three three nurses. It's very upsetting. And the VA has not done our soldiers uh, well. Um, I can tell you, I can tell you story after story about the, uh, the uh, drug cocktails that our soldiers have been given and are still being given. Um, Instead of getting the treatment they need, they just fill them full of pills. Yeah, and yeah. I'm living the horror, I'm living the horror right now. With my husband in the VA. Yeah, yeah. They they. Oh well. Do go online and 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 or or call up your local DAV disabled vets uh, unit or call the VFW and and talk to some veterans about what is going on. Uh, and 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 see what you can do to uh, to support them. Uh, the whole the worst thing that can happen to uh, a soldier or a you know a military person is being forgotten. And uh, sounds like this kid had a lot of problems and and it wasn't addressed. And this is what's happening. It's too hard. You know, we'd rather we'd rather spend the money on uh, on special trips to Las Vegas or uh, you know shine our shoes and line our pockets. Um, so, like I always say, please, if you have a VA nearby, go visit. 
talk to the the men and women there. They love visitors, a lot of them, especially um, the ones that are in the old folks' homes. Or you know, that's what they used to call it. They don't call it anymore. But where you know the the uh, rest home. Um, there's some in there that never get visitors, and it's so sad. And they love visitors, and you can. They always have a volunteer uh, department that you can you can go and talk to whoever is ahead of that, and see what you can do, and and talk to them and and see how they're being treated. And if you don't like what you hear, make some noise. You know, get people's attention. And you can always call the DAV and you can always call the VFW and the American Legion. Rolling Thunder and any other vets group, um, they usually go out once a month uh, to meet with certain uh, people uh, at the VA hospital. And uh, I know because I used to be a, a liaison, Rolling Thunder liaison to the... Uh, VA hospital near me, so these guys will show up and they'll they'll check into it, and uh, you know, and then they they are always you know going to uh, going to the the Congress critters and and making sure that you know they know about this stuff and that they should do something about it, though that's like pulling teeth. But there you have it. So if you can do that, that'd be really great, and pray for our troops uh, that are still. Um, that are still going out to shithole places and dangerous places and places we don't even know about. So, And with that, I say thank you very much for stopping by, and I hope you enjoyed the show. And as always, God bless you and God bless this country, and may our leaders have wisdom uh, from above. And y'all stay safe out there. Have a good week. And and find some kindness to share. And we'll hopefully see you next week. As, you know, we made it two weeks in a row. <laughs> We're doing good. We're on a roll. Thanks so much for stopping by. Good night and God bless.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.